0: This episode is brought to you by Pickford Film Center, downtown Bellingham's only independent movie theater and the home of sci-fi matinees, featuring the best and worst sci-fi movies from the 20th century and beyond. This season's sci-fi matinee theme is robots, including Tobor the Great, The Invisible Boy, Blade Runner, Westworld, and Future World. Pickford Film Center is located at 1318 Bay Street in Bellingham, but you already know that. Okay, it says here, maybe add space sounds in the background, like laser gun style. Pew, 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 pew,
1: pew. Pew,
0: how's that for more information and showtimes you can visit pickfordfilmcenter.org this episode is brought to you by jeff bramus recycling real estate in bellingham since 2001 jeff bramus real estate for real people Welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm David Pender Lofgren. Before we jump into this month's interview, I just want to thank everyone who stopped by our table at Downtown Sounds last month. I love connecting with listeners face-to-face, hearing your suggestions and chatting about music and podcasting. I also want to extend a special thank you to my wife, Allie. While I was busy emceeing the first concert of the series, she stood watch over the table in the pouring rain and somehow managed to sign up more people for our mailing list in two hours than I would over the next two weeks. You know what they say behind every great podcast is a great woman, and this show is no exception. Andy and I are very lucky to be supported by incredible women. Because of their support and the support of our listeners, We're moving full steam ahead on developing more shows to bring to your ears. Hopefully, by now, you've listened to the first episode of Building Bellingham. If not, you can find it by searching for Building Bellingham in your podcast feed. We're currently working on episode two, which will feature Heather Simpson of the She Leads Me Women's Leadership Conference. And speaking of new shows for the Bell Pod Network, I'm incredibly excited to announce that we will be releasing episode one of the Subdued Radio Hour on Monday, September 9th. This show, hosted by Robert, Sarazen and Blake, will feature live recordings from the subdued string band Jamboree. There is a treasure trove of material that's been recorded over the years, and Robert has decided to turn it into a monthly radio show. So stay tuned for that release. Okay, now back to Little City Big Sound. This month's guest has been on the people we should interview list since the very beginning. I've been wanting to sit down with Craig Jewell, not just because he's the owner of the Wild Buffalo, but because of how he became the owner. He took over this venue when he was just 21 years old and still in college. Craig was one of the first club owners that I met as a young musician He's always been supportive of the local scene, but even back then he had this twinkle in his eye that suggested he could see the Wild Buffalo playing a bigger role in this community. Over the last 10 years, Craig has built his venue into an establishment deserving of its name. The Wild Buffalo now plays host to nationally touring artists and bands on a weekly basis. In addition to booking, Craig is a musician in his own right. He currently plays in Petty or Not, Bellingham's Tom Petty tribute supergroup, and has been writing and performing his own original music since his college years. Here's our conversation. Craig Jewell, welcome. Well,
1: I, I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: In 2008, when you were 21 years old... We're just jumping right in. We're jumping right in. Okay and still attending Western Washington University, you and uh, two business partners, Roger Mills and Ed Eversall, took over ownership of the Wild Buffalo. You were barely old enough to be in a bar. You've said before that you had less than $1,000 in your bank account at the time. How does a broke 21-year-old college kid become the owner of the largest music club in town? Um, so
1: I was in a band, We were called the Broken Bottle Band, and we were all 20 and 21 year olds. And, like, in in any way that you could spin it, it was like really bad. But we all had a bunch of friends because we were in college and we liked to party and and pal around with everybody. And, but we were like kind of got this little name in town, like, we, we could bring people out to shows. And so we, uh, I, I randomly went on a, on a pub crawl, and we were going to all the bars that we've never been to before. And we, uh, my my friends and I, we stumble upon the, the the Wild Buffalo, and we get in there and we're like, "Holy crap, this place is awesome! Like we should play here." And we uh, talked to the the owner at the time, and um, John Goodman was the guy who owned it, right? Correct, and. The, I remember the the first conversation that I had with him was I was like, "We would love to play here," and he said, "Do you play the blues?" And that's when I realized that it was like ex- almost exclusively a blues bar, and I, th- I was like, "Well, if you really break this down, I suppose we do. The, the, we we play the blues. We play some version of the blues. <laughs> we play some version of the blues. Yeah. But he wouldn't he wouldn't let us play there, and so then because of, we I, I I couldn't sell myself to him. And then, um, I ended up, they had an open mic night and I fell in love with, with the bar, with the club. And then, um, just kept on talking to the guy and I was like, please just let my band play here. This is so much better than, than driving out to Fairhaven. All my drunk friends can just walk down the street. This would be awesome. And so, uh, finally allowed us to play there. And afterwards, and it was a great show, It just packed the place out and, he comes up to me afterwards and says, this is the most amount of people that we've had in this place and the highest bar sales that we've ever done. How did you do it? I said, we didn't play the blues. <laughs> 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 and and I have nothing but love for, for John Goodman. Him and I still work on stuff uh, even to this day. But he was just very passionate about the blues and and trying to maintain that as being what his venue had. So we, we became close, and at that time, it didn't look like the venue was going to be open for much longer because of the, the financial situation that they were in. And he basically handcuffed me to the business because he respected and trusted what my direction would be with the business. What does that mean, to handcuff you to the business? Basically, so if any other person that wanted to come on board that had money, which wasn't me, <laughs> they, they had to have me become the owner with them. Okay. Literally handcuffed to the business. And, uh, you, is does that
0: mean like contractually or is that like a, like, like somehow he set it up legally or like that was just his sort of his framework. Like if anyone wants to come in and take over the business, Craig also has to be a part owner.
1: Yeah. So, so it was, it was like kind of half and half, very handshaky by, by words, but still it was like, I'm not going to sell this place unless Craig's involved because I trust him. Wow. So he was like, but we need people to buy the place. We need we need money. And uh, so I, I found two people that were currently involved with the business that that had some some money or access to money. And so that's when the first partnership started. And I lied and said that I had a bunch of money, which I didn't. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I got a grandpa. He has money. But I wasn't going to ask my grandpa. I was just like, it was just. Trying to get my way through the whole thing, <laughs> and yeah, I literally, I literally had seven hundred dollars in my bank account when it happened, and I was scared shitless when, when it actually did. And uh, Roger and Edward, Edward was the manager at the time, and Roger was just there helping out with, with, with the space and um, like helping book shows. Yeah, I was, I, I was a twenty-one year old who'd been legal to be in a bar for four months, and all of a sudden I owned a bar and I was still trying to graduate college and it was just beyond frightening because I I didn't know what the formula was. All I knew is that this business had lost lots of money uh, over the course of 10 years and wasn't financially viable and I was now, now this, this thing that was bleeding money is now mine.
0: So do you feel like at that point, like were you... I want to understand, like, you as a college kid, were you super into music? Do you feel like you had a really good sense of what the music scene was and what could uh, what could be profitable? Like, were you coming to, the, to this from a place where you thought, you know, I probably have a good sense of what's, what's popular or what will bring people in the door?
1: Absolutely not. I had no idea. I knew that I could bring my college friends out to, to, to see a show. I wasn't, like, I was raised on the Beach Boys and Frank Sinatra and Michael Jackson. Pop music. And that's all I really knew. And that's like the only shows that I, I, I'd really seen were, were like pop shows. So not on this micro level. I did. I had no idea about it at all. I had no idea what people wanted to see. All I knew is what people didn't really want to see because looking at the books and what had been booked at this specific venue in the past. And so, no, zero knowledge whatsoever about what would work here in Bellingham. And so that's what even made it more frightening other than just, like, buying a hemorrhaging business was buying a business that you didn't know how to run. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. I didn't even tell my parents about it. and They found out by reading a, a newspaper article because that's how frightened I was. Because I didn't even know if it was going to last a week. <laughs> <'Cause> like, <laughs> I was like, I didn't have to pay anything for it, so I was like, I'm not going to tell anybody. But this is this is crazy. Wow. And uh, yeah, my mom called me crying. And was like, Craig, what are you doing? I was like, What do you mean, mom? Just graduating college. It's like, what? What is this I just read in the paper? Like, oh yeah, I got a I got a bar. Now, <laughs> uh, but I am almost done graduating, so you got to be proud about that, right?
0: <laughs> so you, you graduated, eventually, like a year later, you graduated with a, a BA in communications and a minor in uh, business administration, is that right? International business. I created my own minor. Aha. Uh-huh. So this wasn't, that wasn't like an attempt to, oh, quick, I better get a minor that will teach me something about running a business
1: no no my my i was doing everything i could just to get out of of college um i i had 20 credits left the, the moment that i got uh the club um and you know having 20 credits that's that's daunting basically 18 credits is as much as somebody can take to you know in a quarter and it's 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 very difficult to do to take eighteen credits and live a normal life because that's that's that takes up every every bit of your time. Let alone re- run a brand new business. Exactly, that's that's the other factor. And so uh, I went to the com department and basically got on my knees and pled to them and said, "Listen, I think that I've found my career path, and it is with this live music venue." And I am learning a ton about communication within this business that I am now running. And I know that there's upper division business or communication credits that you can give um, for internships. How about you give me 20 credits for an internship at the Wild Buffalo so that I can be done with college? And I presented this to a panel of people that discussed it. And then I graduated. Wait, they said yes?
0: They said yes. To you getting an internship with yourself?
1: Correct. And uh, not a lot of people. I haven't really told that to a lot of people. Um, but it did happen. So that's a whole another like four months out of my life for the business that I was trying to figure out.
0: Right. So meanwhile, you're spending your nights at, this venue that you own, correct. And what does that look like in the first several months?
1: It it, it looks like me glued on my computer, and at the same time, uh, you know, m- meeting and and talking with everybody in the scene that I possibly can, because you know, going back to what, what you originally asked, like, did I did I know what to to book or like how to like what the scene wanted. I had no idea. So I had to go and and just talk and meet with everybody to try and figure out what, what it is that people want in this town. So who are you talking to to figure that out? I think you and I met pretty early on in the scene, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, a number of people, you start out with, um, you know, the Acorn Project guys were, were the, the the first folks that I really kind of like latched onto and became friends with. And then you know, like Yoga Man, because like I, I, I mean, he was on top of the the Bellingham World during those the, that time frame.
0: Right. This is two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Right. So, mm-hmm. Yoga Man Burning Band was huge.
1: Huge, and yeah. just just Yoga Man as as a as a DJ back then. Oh
0: right, yeah. Sure, he had his uh, Reggae Wednesdays or whatever.
1: Exactly, and um, that that's a great thing that you you bring up is that the his his Wednesday nights changed the whole um landscape of bellingham nightlife so
0: this was yoga man who had a band um he would also spin vinyl like old school reggae 45s and he would do that once a week that was originally at boundary bay right in the beer garden
1: yes and uh and then once a month at boundary bay in the beer garden he would have the live band play right but it was, and, and it was, that was just during the summer, and it was just this, it was all out mayhem. It was like the biggest night that you could imagine. Uh, but during that time frame, the biggest nights in Bellingham were Thursday nights. Back at the, the up and up, you'd start at the up and up, and you'd, you'd get the super cheap pitchers, uh, and then you would go to the nightlight, which is now the underground, uh, and there'd be a line around the block. And that would be 80s night, right? And everybody went out on Thursday nights for years and years and years in Bellingham. That was just like the big thing. But then on, on, during the summers, the Wednesday night became like a, a big deal because of Yoga Man's um, uh, reggae nights. Uh, and then there was also this uh, bar, which is now the Shakedown, and it used to be called the Callaloo. And the Callaloo was a reggae bar. Like, they almost just specifically had, like, reggae music or... Yeah, and they
0: had, like, a Caribbean-themed kitchen
1: and stuff. Yeah, and dance hall and and all that. And the day that I... It was literally the day that I basically signed paperwork um, of, of when I was going to become the owner of the Wild Buffalo was the day that the Cowluck closed. Like previously, I I during my like my networking frenzy of just trying to meet everybody in the town in the scene, I went over and I, I met uh, DJ Ryan, I and I met uh, DJ Triple Crown, who were kind of running uh, the Calo, and um, they closed the day that I signed. It was a Wednesday, and they were like, called they called me up. It was a random number, and I was like, "Hello, this is Craig." Um, they called me up and (laughs) said, Hey, hey, oh, Craig, uh, it was nice to meet you the other day, but, uh, the Kalaloo's closed now. And we always did the after party on Wednesday nights of, of reggae night during the summer. Meaning
0: Uh, that, so uh, yoga man would DJ like eight to 10 or something and the Kalaloo would sort of pick up the crowd. Exactly.
1: Because they had the, the curfew outside and then they would pick up the crowd and just giant line massive party and it was just during the summer because thursday was still the hot spot and so they're like we need a place to play is there any chance that we could you said that you're now affiliated with the buffalo and that day i said yes uh we have open mic but i'll i'll cut it short and i'll make it stop at 10 and then we can do reggae djs and have you guys play and we'll create this reggae night and so that day we that i signed we created Reggae Night, and we built it and ran it for eight years. And that in itself changed what the Bellingham nightlife scene was because we pushed it so hard and made that Wednesday night at the Wild Buffalo with, with the the Cowaloo DJs, with the, the Coast sound system, Ryan and I, and Triple Crown... That was like the big night to go out right. at, at, during during the work week. Yeah, it just it was it was crazy. It was crazy to watch that just whole transition happen, or even to, to attempt it, and it it worked. And it didn't it didn't just go overnight because, you know, the moment that that school started and Yoga Man wasn't playing in the beer garden, and we weren't just this big after party where just people just got dumped into it. It you know it was a struggle for a while, but then we just kept at it, and it took about three years until it just it's just a line around the block every single Wednesday and then you have I mean a
0: month full of nights where you're trying to figure out okay which live bands are we going to bring in um are people like are there bands actively soliciting trying to get gigs at the club or at that point was the wild buffalo sort of uh off the radar enough that you weren't like fielding a lot of requests you were trying to get people to come and play the venue.
1: Uh, that's absolutely what was happening. I, I was hitting everybody up, um, you know, which puts me at a lower like negotiation standpoint because like, who the fuck are you? Like, what the fuck is this place? You know, I have to sell myself and um, you know, it's really difficult at first to try and, and do it. But once, you know, you sort of get the team on board and you get those local acts and, and, The local acts are signing off, and then, um, you know, I did that for probably the first three years. And and then it got to the point where it was like, okay, now it's time to take risks. right? Because the whole business is, is, it's essentially professional gambling um, with booking bands. It's like, how much are people willing to pay to see what act in our market? And it, it, it's, a, it's a tough gamble at times because sometimes you don't really know. I mean, there's, there's variables that you can control and not control, like this school in session? How's the weather going to be? You know, what are people listening to? And you have to put money up in order to, to take a shot at it. And it's a scary thing to do that. And so um, sometimes you lose and sometimes you win. And then you figure that out in the beginning and then you just figure out how to, to win more often. Do you remember what the
0: first band was that you booked? Like what, would the, what the first show was that you're like, this was a big risk. I worked really hard. Now it feels like I'm, do you remember the first time it worked?
1: I don't remember the first time that it worked. I remember the, the first time I was the most scared was with Keller Williams. I was very familiar with the
0: act. Keller Williams uh, is a sort of one-man band act, really big in the jam scene, um, and has no affiliation with the royalty right. company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, Keller is a one-man jam band. Right. And he, uh, you know, in order to get any kind of artist, you, you have to, to guarantee them a certain amount of money. And... Uh, I was like, this, this will work. This will work. But they wanted X amount of money and X amount of money was just like, I don't have that in this business's bank account. Like this is frightening. And, but I was like, I, I I feel like it's going to work. And uh, so I like had to convince my business partners, you know, this isn't just me alone. Just, you know, I have people that are relying on me to make sure that this thing works. Oh, oh, here's the best part about all of this. Back then, you know, we we're talking right when we were starting this business. So this is about like 2008, 2009? something Somewhere in there? People did not buy pre-sale tickets at the Wild Buffalo at all. We just didn't have like the, a, a website that really like supported it because there was never one in place beforehand. So there was no pre-sale tickets. Like the previous Wild Buffalo pre-sale tickets, a bartender would just write down the name of the band and then would ask around for the how much the ticket price was and then was just write it in and just sell it. It it was just bonkers. And so the, we now I was like, all right, we have to use brown paper tickets cause this is accessible and we can do this now. And, um, so even then, like, so the, so the day of that show vividly remember that I had 24 tickets sold for it online. That's not a lot of tickets and, like, how many,
0: roughly, like, how many tickets do you think you needed to sell in order to? 350. 350 in order to, like, make your gamble work. They call it
1: your nut. Okay. To make my nut. Okay. And uh, so that's the most frightening thing you could ever imagine. Very, very scary. But even though back then people wouldn't buy pre-sale tickets, you still were able to get your own kind of metric of confidence based on how the town was talking. Because I was just out there talking with everybody, and that's how I was like selling these shows. Was just straight up, "Hey Ace, wow, we have Keller rooms. You coming? You are coming, right?" And then you'd be like, "Oh yeah, 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 dude, I'm coming. Yeah, that sounds really fun. We'll see you there Thursday. No, Friday. Be like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll see you there. Like, and that, that was my metric. We don't have like Facebook stats. We don't have poll star numbers. Right. It's just that. And so I was like, I still feel good about it. And then yeah, we ended up selling out, and and uh, you know, t- we ended up making making money and everyone was like sweating me so hard and I was sweating myself I was frightened and that show was the one that just gave me kind of the the itch I'm like I'm going to go nuts with this now like I'm going to see what I can do and that's when I just started reaching out and to every agent I possibly could and just was on the grind with seeing who I could possibly bring to this town and see what could and couldn't work So, um, to kind of create a fair balance with that, with those successes that you have with like that first big one, you also have massive failures. And I mean, there's no way around it because it is just professional gambling and sometimes the cards don't fall your way. Even if you try to control every variable that you possibly can, for example, uh, we had this act, uh, I'm not going to say it specifically, but it was a big reggae act and it had... Sold out the first time that it came through at twenty dollars tickets, and so the next time around, um, you know, the agent hit me up and was like, "Oh, it's time to bring this reggae back act back in." And I was like, "Oh yeah, let's do it. That's sold out. This is awesome. Woo!" And uh, I didn't, and I and I put in a a big giant offer reflecting how much money the that it made the the first time, and then um, it only did a hundred or so tickets sold and it lost buttloads of money. And then I had to go back and be like, what did I do wrong? And then I realized that the first one was on the Saturday before Halloween. And the Saturday before Halloween means it's Halloween. Yeah. And it took me a long time to figure that out. But the Saturday before Halloween actually is Halloween to lots of people. Because that's just their time to go out and, you know, we have kids or we have school. I'm not going to go celebrate on Tuesday. I go out on the Saturday before Halloween. So that was sort of the first
0: time that you realized, like, there are layers of, of variables here. Absolutely. And so it's like, how well does the band do? Also, what day is it? What's the community? Yeah, people gave zero
1: shits about that reggae band. <laughs> so I had to find that out the hard way. <laughs> 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 that's why I didn't mention. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's a lot of lessons to be learned and that, that were learned over the years.
0: Um, I want to back up for a second. So the thing sure. that you're talking about doing mostly here is um, booking the venue. And that's sure. referred to as being a talent buyer, right? Correct. So you are the primary talent buyer for the Wild Buffalo. Is that correct? Correct. And you have been essentially since you bought yep. the business. Yep, from day one. Can you talk about like the other aspects of uh, sort of the unique placement of Bellingham as far as <clears> what that allows you to do when you're talking with agents?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's take the East Coast, for example. There's a major market every every two hours. You know, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, like it's boom, 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 boom. And then you get on the, the West Coast and then you have Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, Sacramento maybe, San Francisco, LA, San Diego maybe. And that's that's it. So having these filler markets in the West Coast is so crucial for 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 bands to be able to tour through and actually make it like financially feasible. So that's that's why this works. Um is because they need that extra money on the road. And it also works because a lot of bands can't go to, to Canada because they've had uh, felonies. And so uh, it happens frequently where a band will <laughs> hit us up and, and be like, well, we just realized that uh, Johnny the bass player has like four DOIs and can't go to BC for our BC play. So is there any chance that we could just play at the Wild Buffalo? I can't tell you how many massive shows I've had from that exact scenario. <laughs> <laughs> like, like probably 20. Wow. Like, sold out, like, massive underplays. And underplay is when a band plays a venue that they have no business playing at, which we've kind of hung our hat on as far as the, the Buffalo goes, is having, like, the the Macklemore's and the Snoop Dogs and the Odessa's and bands that have no business playing. Those are just because we've develop good relationships with those acts. Then there's the other side of the underplace where they just can't go to Canada. (laughs) Uh,
0: As the Buffalo has grown, you've had to, like, uh, adapt the business a lot. It feels like, you know, you've increased security presence. uh, The bar staff has grown. You've expanded the size of the stage. Can you talk about sort of the moments uh, when you realized, okay, we need to do something different here? Like, are there specific instances... Um, when you've had an experience and learned a lesson that told you like, okay, we need to change the way that we're operating because either the acts that we're bringing in are changing or the audience is changing or.
1: Well, so, I mean, absolutely. We recently dealt with a situation where a, uh, an individual, uh, their pronouns are, are they and them, uh, approached a security staff and, and asked, them, if they were able to or allowed to use uh, the men's bathroom because that's what made them feel uh, more comfortable, and it's it's been our policy to where to allow anybody to use whatever restroom that they wanted to. Uh, you know, in in our industry there is a high turnover in staff, and sometimes we would overlook giving every single staff member our entire policies and telling them exactly how we, everything should be be ran and that's that's our fault as you know as business owners and and we assume all that fault and take responsibility for it and that staff member said i don't think so cuz they just didn't know what our policies were and how they should really answer that question and then it got brought to our attention via social media and direct messages and i i i personally stepped in to to not only apologize and take responsibility for it but um we offered up a a, a class put on by P Flag and so i mean it was a wake up call and it was it was good we had the class at the venue um and you know, a lot, of, a lot of good came from it. A lot of people from the community came out that had their own questions. Uh, the, the person that was involved in the whole thing came out and uh, they were very grateful of us taking care of it and there was nothing but hugs at the end of it and we ended up putting on a drag show together this last Tuesday. Awesome. So like there's there's times like that when I do jump out of just the talent situation and the entertainment part of things um when it's absolutely necessary to because it is my business and and I have to make sure that everybody feels comfortable in the business. This episode is brought to you by Irish and Folk Mondays at
0: Boundary Bay Brewery every monday jan peters hosts a thriving irish music session followed by a stunning acoustic concert series featuring local regional and nationally touring artists performing a wide variety of folk and traditional music listeners and players alike can enjoy the great selection of food and drink available in the boundary bay beer garden Experience the age old tradition of session playing with Bellingham's intergenerational Celtic music community and revel in the world class sounds of the feature performance. This month, Yan Songs Productions is proud to present the lively Quebecois and Acadian dance music of Groupe du Jour, local phenoms of Rad Trad, Sweater Weather, regional old time banjo great Jerry Gallagher with harmonica master Mark Graham and Irish Accordion Master John Whelan with All-Ireland Fiddle Champion Brian Conway. For showtimes and more, visit yansongsproductions.com and follow Irish and Folk Mondays on Facebook. Irish and Folk Mondays at Boundary Bay Brewery, where the only boundaries are the beers.
1: the subdued String Band Jamboree plan our year around it. But what if we didn't have to wait until August to hear the sounds of the slanted stage? My name is Robert Sarazin-Blake. For 19 years, I've been the host of the party we call the Subdued String Band Jamboree. And now, now I'll be your host for an hour of music, monologue, and memories from jamborees, past, present, and future. Each jamboree, while you've been dancing and lounging in the field, we've been capturing the magic posterity. We've decided to bring those recordings back into the light. Beginning Monday, September 9th, myself and the Bell Pod Network are proud to present the Subdued Radio Hour. Subscribe now and join me as I drop the needle on two decades of jamboree joy.
0: Uh, One of the strangest things about the music business is that it's standard practice for touring acts to have what's referred to as a hospitality rider. Uh, This is essentially a portion of their contract that says the promoter is required to provide, like, a dressing room, or in the music business we call it a green room, along with specific, sometimes very specific, types of food, drink, other amenities. Um, Probably the best-known example of this is Van Halen requesting a bowl of M&Ms with all the brown M&Ms removed. Mm-hmm. Um, as an owner and a talent buyer, like, you negotiate these hospitality writers all the time. What are some of the strangest requests you've received or are there, like, do people ask for things that really surprise you?
1: Uh, I mean, at this point, nothing surprises me. The, the first time that I had a, a, a giant writer from an act was this big, country music legend. and we we look at the writer and it is just pages long. It's we need to, you know, on Mondays we need to have a chicken dinner and everybody needs to have chicken on Tuesdays it's salmon. Um, no matter what, we need like all these pellegrinos we need a bottle of bourbon. We need two bottles of of uh, tequila of this caliber like 300 beers not even exaggerating added up to about 300 beers basically like just shy of $1000 worth of of things that you could consume and being so naive and young at the time we went and bought all of it just like it would have been the coolest party for anybody in the entire world like for for 40 people like 40 people would have been stoked and drunk And having the time of their lives and just fed as much as they could possibly eat. And uh, when they arrived, I vividly remember this guy, uh, the tour manager, he goes, holy shit, look at this spread. And it was just like, oh, God damn it. (laughs) We provided everything, and he is shocked. (laughs) So I should not have provided everything, and I should have just advanced this with Mr. Country Music Legend and not have provided everything. What I've learned over the years is that they are wish lists as well as they want to make sure that you're paying attention. And if you pay attention to the small things, it shows that you're a good promoter and that you're taking care of them. There's this act that's been through Beats Antique. They're a a very big national touring act. Uh, They play rooms anywhere from, you know, fifteen hundred people to three thousand people. So playing a room our size is, you know, an underplay for them. And on their rider, it it said three baby robots, and this was one of the biggest, like the first biggest acts that we'd had, and so I was. Like, shit, where did we get these baby robots at? And uh, we, we, myself and my business partner at the time were like scrambling around, like looking for, what can we find? And then we ended up going to, um, what's that business that Django used to own? Oh, Merchbot. Merchbot. And uh, he had these little tiny little robots there that you could buy. Merchbot was like a a novelty sticker and a novelty store. Right. And uh, so we got the baby robots. And, you know, right when they get to the green room, they saw the baby robots. And they were immediately just ecstatic and elated. Like, oh, they got the baby robots. And they were, like, high-fiving the whole crew. And we were, like, yeah. And it just showed them that we paid attention. You know, right. we, we weren't just, like, looking at, like, the, all right, they need, like, a shit ton of alcohol and they want some hummus and... So on and so forth, and just pr- provided our own spread for them. We actually cater to them, and so that's kind of like the the holistic writer is what we've kind of figured out. Like, make them happy, make them comfortable, try to make sure that they're not too drunk, and uh, that's that's kind of the routine.
0: Do you feel like some of that is your responsibility to? Like like to not give them too much alcohol or something? Is that part of your job?
1: Not necessarily. I, that's the tour manager's job. I mean, th- there's a reason why you you basically take a babysitter along with you when you're on the road. <laughs> it's so that they make sure that you don't do that. And so you you do like to, you know, you, you spread the alcohol out there and, and whatever they ask for. Another a random item that, that often gets put into riders is ambiguous terms for drugs. Like a bag of the good stuff. And you're like, well, what do they deem is the good stuff, and who am I gonna get it from? And so, <laughs> well, in Washington,
0: we can you can be like, okay, well, you know, sure, weed's yeah. legal. I can buy you a joint or something, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, they can't they can't uh, consume that in the in the building, um, sure. But you kind of sometimes you just kind of get playful with it and just beforehand, be like. What kind of good stuff are you asking for? And if they're like, heroin, you'd be like, mm-mm. <laughs> 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 and so <laughs> that that actually hasn't happened. But uh, th- sometimes people have asked for some harder drugs in the past. And um, I think it behooves us to not um, try and go looking for hard drugs. And so we don't. <laughs> but if if marijuana is legal and we can find some and somebody wants some – we can get that for them and tell them not on the property. Right. Um, We could talk about The Wild
0: Buffalo forever. Uh, Sure. I do want to move on to some other stuff. Um, But before I do that, you have been responsible for some of the biggest shows that Bellingham has seen in the past decade. What does the process look like for you when you're booking really big acts like how what is it like communicating with their management uh what are the negotiations like like what do you have to do on a venue level to prepare for a, an act that normally plays huge venues
1: i have to pretend that like, i'm like really cool like i think that's like step number one <laughs> and uh it, it's 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 quite different than like the normal every day-to-day communication that i have um Because usually you're you're kind of on, like, an even playing field. Like, we both have the same goal um, when talking to an agent about a normal act. Like, act wants to play room my size. I want act that size to play my room. And so the communication level is just kind of like, hey, let's make this work. Whereas it's when it's a massive act that has no business playing (laughs) a room our size. It's um, it's it's a lot more of uh, groveling. Is that the right word? Groveling, like y- like you're groveling to them. <laughs> yes, it, it's like please, let's make this happen. And uh, b- being patient, and again, I mean, it's it's the negotiation process process is still similar because you're putting up money, and it just becomes a whole lot more. Um, and it's just but it's absolutely catering to every single one of their needs. So, so they get the whole writer. They get the, the whole, the whole hospitality field. <laughs> so speaking of that, um, going back to writer and exactly what you're asking for, for Snoop Dogg. Uh, so Snoop Dogg came in a, as a complete fluke. It was a, a friend of mine. He's a manager of a bunch of different acts, and he ta- talent buys for a venue down in California, and he just sends me a text and says, hey, do you, do you want to look at Snoop Dogg on December 22nd? And then I just said, LOL. And he responded back, what? And I s- responded back, yes, question mark. And he goes, so you have the date available? And I said, yes, question mark. Are you serious? And he goes, yeah, I need X amount of money. And X amount of money was like the scariest amount of money you could ever imagine. But then it ended up just going for it. And then it became writer time. Snoop Dogg's writer was ungodly insane. It would have... It would have, like, basically... um, It would have made an entire prom happy for a 4A high school. And... (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Long story short Snoop Dogg gets in the room Asks for a lighter Lights a blunt You can't tell Snoop Dogg that he can't smoke blunt We'll take whatever fine (laughs) Snoop Dogg goes on stage Performs for 55 minutes Walks off stage Leaves There's $1,200 worth of shit in the green room (laughs) And uh and we laid it out perfectly. Like made it just look like the most beautiful spread you could possibly ever imagine. And um why? It's <laughs> cool. <laughs> so what do you do with all that stuff? Consume it, you know, like uh you know, get on Brit list and try to see what you can sell, save and salvage what you can. Um you know, like treat your you know, here's your here's your bonus to the staff. Uh, and here's your Christmas <laughs> bonus. Uh, you get this bottle. You get this bottle. Yeah, that kind of stuff. You know.
0: Okay, uh, I want to move on to Petty or Not. We had Stephanie Walbon, your bandmate from Petty or Not, on Love the her. show a few months ago, but our conversation never actually ended up covering much about the band. Mm. So uh, maybe just can you give me a quick like synopsis of what the band is when you guys started.
1: So w- what happened is um, I had taken a long break from from performing live music, and a lot of it was just being busy, doing the festival, just the business in general, and also just realizing that every original band that I, I was in was, was failing. But then after three and a half years of not really playing any music, I decided that for my 10-year anniversary at the Bob Buffalo, I wanted to uh, get some of my favorite musicians together and basically just kind of do a one-off jam Saturday night, make it free. And that's when I got the the group together, which was Jeremy and Aaron from Polecat, Kevin and Jeff and Stephanie from Baby Cakes. And we just did this night of music that was amazing and fun and packed to the brims. And then the, the following day, you know, we were in a big text thread and Jeremy just text, we have to do it, and then post the article about Tom Petty passing away. So Jeremy sent that to us, and we just decided, like, let's do a one-off Tom Petty show. It, that, that was the, the whole intention of it, just a one-off Tom Petty show. And then we got an offer to play Downtown Sounds immediately afterwards, and that was for, like, 7,000 people. And we're like, we're not even a band. <laughs> but like this is fun, and then we got an offer after that, uh, that show, and then they just the offers just didn't stop coming in with with people wanting us to to keep the thing going, and we never wanted to to stop. We just didn't have the intention of it doing that from the get go. Um, but we just we we all love each other. We all love the music, and we don't have to worry about anything like. The, the, the old stuff went back when we were doing the original songs and all the, the dramas and the nonsense that goes in with all that. And it's just been this wild, fun ride of playing music we love, and it's petty or not. So it, it also gives us the, the freedom of doing Fleetwood Mac, and sometimes we even throw in songs that have nothing to do with petty, just when somebody gets the itch and we all like the song. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're like we sold out the Tractor Tavern. We also have a headline gig at, at Nectar Lounge. That's that's coming up, and we're so we're getting like these prominent gigs at places that we've wanted to play at in our original groups that we've never been able to to get in on, and we're selling them out without having to try. Uh, I think it's because we're playing uh, music from somebody that's not us, like Tom Petty. I think that's a big factor in it. <laughs> <laughs> but we we uh, we 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 love it and we 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 do a good job at it and uh, my I, I do know that my girlfriend um, is starting to get a little old of it because I I listen to it every single day in the shower and I sing it out loud at least three songs um, for the first shower that's in the morning and then the second shower at nighttime um, so I'm pretty dedicated to it. To taking showers or to... I would say both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to have the two showers and I have to listen to at least three songs and sing those songs at the top of my lungs.
0: Okay, so, I mean, you're a guitar player, a singer. uh, You've done a bunch of songwriting for uh, Juicebox and Broken Bottle Band, uh, bands that that you've played with in the past. Now that you're singing these Tom Petty songs, uh, I mean, he's a master of American songwriting, do you feel like you're learning? Like, What are you learning about songwriting?
1: Well, so I, I the, the things about Tom Petty is he has all these weird nuances that are extremely irritating. I come from a background of kind of like a, a, a rigid, like, you know, the, the circle of fifths. So this goes to this. This goes to this. This doesn't work with this. These aren't friends. Don't do that. Um, don't do me like that. And sometimes Tom Petty will just, he'll, he'll like get out a key. And um, for example, uh, You Wreck Me. In, in the bridge, it's an instrumental bridge. It's going from C, G, C, G, 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 C, G, C, G, G, G. Then he goes... E to be to e to B, 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 e to B, E to, B, e to B, 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 back to D, bow, bow. And he goes out of key. Like the song completely goes out of key. And I don't think he knew what he was doing at all. I think he was just like, this sounds good to me right now, now. This sounds good to <laughs> me right now, now. And it's like, it puts this crazy perspective of like, you don't have to be in this 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 circle, this box, that's the things that you told, this only works right here.
0: Right. Essentially what you're saying is that the standard rules of how chords work to how chords are supposed to work together uh, is the world that you come from. And Tom Petty's writing in a way where he's sort of breaking a bunch of the rules that you learn if you're trying to learn like quote unquote how to write
1: music. Correct. And so it 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 it, it's kind of like frustrating but like like it's like wow that like that's I never thought that that sounded bad or wrong to me. But if I like if I'm playing it, I'm like this. Why I shouldn't be playing this right now? And then, but it sounds great still, and it makes it cool. Yeah. And um, back to your original question of have I been able to apply that to my original like writing? No, it's it's too difficult for me to break those standards, and I have tried to do it, and I. But I still have trouble kind of, you know, breaking the rules per, right. per se. Um, even though these rules are are meant to be broken. And it's a cool way of, of thinking about, about music and trying to do it. But it, I, I still do have a, a tough time doing that.
0: Have you been writing any music since you've been in Pity or Not?
1: Oh, yeah. I've, I've been going nuts with it. And and uh been in the studio um, with like, a lot of guys in the group. And Aaron Guest, who's in, who's in the band, Aaron actually has been kind of the, one of the main motivators of, of getting me to start recording and kind of put together my first... I don't want to call it a single because that means that there's more and there's there's not anything else yet. We recorded a song, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was the one that that was like almost demanded that that we do it, and we did, and I'm I'm very happy about it. Can we? Uh, can will
0: you send me a, a copy of that so we can play it at the end of the show? Absolutely. So in Petty or Not, um, you, Aaron Guest and Stephanie Walbon all sing lead. Yes. You all take turns singing lead. And like all of the members of the band are that sing are really strong singers. But I've noticed that like when you take lead, you're singing like Tom Petty. Like you're actually using some of the inflections, you're using some of the uh, if we want to get really like n- vocalist nerdy about it, like you're shaping some of your vowels like his to get uh, this really authentic sound. What kind of work do you have to do to accomplish that? Or like what have you noticed about the way that Tom Petty sings that allows you to do that?
1: To touch on the the nerdy side of it, you said vowels. Uh, it's consonants with Tom Petty. He, he goes to the consonant of... Words faster than you would normally want to go to a consonant um, so like uh, it's like the waiting is the hardest part so he goes that R and part way faster than you would normally want to hang out on that that ah hardest part Right, and I st- now I'm, I'm, I I tend to go to that that I can't even go back to normal singing anymore because I, I I taught myself how to go to that consonant way quicker, and so yeah, it's just learning those those inflections. And he actually learned all of that from and picked those up from Bob Dylan because they went on tour in '86 together, and he didn't normally have that 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 nasal inflection um, until him and and Dylan became best buds and, and they did the, the Wilburys together. And then he just started getting that yeah, yeah. and, uh, but still sounding wonderful at the same time. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a weird way of singing that still sounds great to me and most people. Do you do any
0: booking for Petty or
1: Not? Yes, to a certain degree. We, we, so myself and, and, uh, Aaron kind of co-dad the band
0: I'm asking because I I wonder if being having spent so much time on the other side now as the talent buyer and the venue owner like if that changes the way that you interact with talent buyers or venue owners
1: as a band member as a representative of the band absolutely and it's it, it's fun on the other side because uh, I I know what what they're looking for because they is is me you know for the most part, but we, like I was saying, we we sought this thing out as a one-off, as as something to just be fun for us to spend time together, not as something that we're typically like just like, you know, we're not reaching out to a bunch of people to try and get ourselves booked. And so usually it's just like we play a gig and then somebody comes to us and says we would like to, for you guys to play. And so like the, the negotiation process is kind of like, not as rigorous as it, as it would be. Sure, it's not like you're booking a tour and trying to yeah. contact a ton of different venues. And and so, it, but I, I I do like to have that that interpersonal conver- conversations with the people that are that are contacting us. And so that that has been kind of put on my my lap. And do you tell them that you're a venue owner? <laughs> I don't like. <laughs> Sometimes I do. <laughs> Uh, I don't like to throw around like you know I, I'd like to be the the band member that is booking with them at that time if it gets to a point where I feel it would make sense to say something like that sure I will if you know they start talking down to me and be like what do you know you dumb dumb I'm like well I, 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 I own a venue I book a venue if I feel like that's you know that's kind of like <laughs> a Crayola way of <laughs> of an example but Um, if, if I feel like it makes sense to to say something like that, then I will.
0: So you're playing in a band that seems like it's doing pretty well. You have a venue and, you know, you and your partners are, it seems like, like that's a success. What happens now? Like, where do you see, what do you want to try to accomplish next?
1: That's a scary question. You know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm singing in the shower, it's like I used to, when I, as a child, I would like be in the bathtub and I would be playing with action figures and, you know, I'd be like flying around and I'd and be imagining like that was me and like that's what I would love to do. That's like my goal to be able to fly like Superman and to do all this. And then as I got older, I would do the same thing. I would sing in the shower and I would imagine myself performing those songs live in front of a, a large group of people and then uh it, it's happened you know like i've i've be, i'm basically flying around like superman as far as what my like goals were like it's like my, my child's goals um so i don't know like i i what next is and at some point I'm sure that uh, I'll hit the doldrums and, and I'll need something else and, um, you know, maybe I will fly someday.
0: Well, Craig, uh, thanks for taking some time out of your busy life to come in and do this with us.
1: Thank you for taking uh, your time out of your busy life to pick me up and bring me here.
0: All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks again to Craig for coming in and thoroughly entertaining us with his stories. If you want more information on the Wild Buffalo or any of Craig's projects, we'll put links in the show notes. And if you don't know what show notes are, no worries. You can find everything at our website, littlecitybigsound.com. This interview is recorded at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. Our ad music is courtesy of Mystery Chi. Thanks, Joel. Our interviews are engineered and mixed by Andy Rick. Our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick. And our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the Bell Pod Network, a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. We'll leave you with Craig Jewell's new single, written by Craig and Aaron Gast and recorded at Royal Purple Recording Studios. Here's I Dream.
1: That stick in the middle of my mind Of my mind Was never told by mom or dad That it was wrong or re- On the pillow, making up lies that stick in the middle of my mind